Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're reassessing the legacy of Daniel O'Connell as we approach the bicentenary of his great civil rights campaign. And we'll be debating how it should be remembered. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the life and legacy of Septimius Severus, the Roman emperor who made his two sons co-emperor, only for the eldest to murder his brother. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Born in Kerry in 1775, Daniel O'Connell rose to prominence as one of the greatest barristers of his day, as well as for his remarkable campaign for civil rights for oppressed Irish people, what became known as Catholic Emancipation, which became law in 1829. However, his attempts to repeal the Act of Union, culminating in a series of monster meetings in 1843, ended in failure. A global figure in his lifetime, he died in Genoa in 1847 and was buried in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin, where a huge crowd gathered to pay its respects, despite this being the worst year of the famine. This decade marks the bicentenary of some of O'Connell's greatest achievements, and so in tonight's show, we want to assess his life and his legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Morris Brick is Emeritus Professor of History at University College Dublin and the Director of the Daniel O'Connell Summer School. He has written about the United States, Canada, Spain and France and has recently finished a book on O'Connell's South Kerry. Connor Dodd is an historian with Dublin Cemeteries Trust and manages its Heritage and Education Department within the Experience Glasnevin Visitor Centre in Glasnevin Cemetery. Well, you're both very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Professor Christine Keneally, Director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute and Professor of History at Quinpiniac University in Connecticut. Her books include Daniel O'Connell and the Anti-Slavery Movement, The Saddest People the Sun Sees, and Black Abolitionists in Ireland. And we'll also be talking to Brian Crowley, an historian working with the Heritage Service at the OPW National Monument Service, who did the interpretive strategy at Derry Nan House and who has been involved with its exhibitions and collections. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And Morris, I might begin with you. Well, maybe I might begin with O'Connell and his place in Irish history and I suppose how he's remembered today because in some senses he's not really as high up as as maybe the figures from the revolutionary decade, Patrick Pierce, Michael Collins and all of them. It's a very big <laughs> question. Um, I mean, I suppose O'Connell is remembered primarily as the great parliamentarian, really, and the, the way in which he laid the basis for a more dynamic uh, parliamentary system um, and um, remembered very much in that way in South Kerry, for example. Um, also remembered as a benign landlord, I would think. Remembered as a great figure both locally, nationally and internationally. And internationally, and it's that international dimension that I think has really only come to to prominence in recent years. And, and later in the show, we'll be talking to Christine Keneally about O'Connell's campaigns against slavery and so on. And Morris, I wonder, you know, this is the, the decade where so many of the great events in the campaign for Catholic emancipation happened. I think you spoke at an event recently and that was the bicentenary of the founding of the Catholic Association in 2028. We're going to have the bicentenary of him winning his seat in Parliament in County Clare. 2029 is the winning of that great Civil Rights Act, you know, the Catholic emancipation. So this is a very significant decade in terms of remembering Daniel O'Connell. Yes, it is, because there are so many different aspects to him. As I said uh, a while ago, um, we remember him as an interna- as a national figure, a, fig- a national political figure. Uh, we remember him also for what he had to say about relationships between church and state, for example. Of course, perhaps more controversially, we remember him for his views on violence and the extent to which that can be included as part of a political argument. 
Uh, we remember him as somebody who built his authority on the authority of the people. And all of these things, I think, are important, not just because of what they, how they address the narrative of his life and the various chapters of his life, but also um, they, uh, they address the wider issues which are still with us. And, of course, in the recent decade of commemorations, as you mentioned, a lot of these issues were ventilated uh, with respect to Ireland during the 1920s and period 1916, 1923. They were ventilated when the um, centenary, bicentenary of the 1798 rebellion was being conducted, for example. And all of these issues are still with us. And O'Connell is a catalyst, I think, for a lot of these and in many ways is as relevant uh, to these discussions as any of the other commemorations that we're, we're, we, we've held in recent years. And Connor, and yet it seems to be maybe harder to sell the idea of commemorating something like Catholic emancipation than it is to, say, commemorate the 1916 Rising because people kind of understand the 1916 Rising and its significance and they understand the significance of the First Thal and the Treaty and Irish independence and so on. But I think as time has passed... Catholic emancipation has become obscure and shrouded in kind of confusion and people don't really kind of get now how significant it was at the time and how much it meant to Irish people. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's something that can be taken for granted all too easily. And certainly when you look at O'Connell's long political career and the different things that he was involved in, there were a lot of very significant moments, as you've mentioned, but there isn't anything, I suppose, that has quite literally has the, the big bang of the, the Easter Rising and the very dramatic events that surrounded it. And obviously it's a little bit further removed from time as well. But I think we can't underestimate the impact that O'Connell had in terms of laying a foundation for the further political progress that occurred throughout the 19th century into the 20th century. And certainly if you look at that revolutionary generation, to a certain extent, they detached themselves from O'Connell and looked upon him in a different way um, from the way in which we might. But he had a very significant legacy and certainly... You know, Glasnevin was was one of those. And I think if you look at the cemetery really as this little microcosm of that development of the national idea, it wasn't just a cemetery that O'Connell founded. It was a national, uh, uh, this idea of a national cemetery, a pantheon in the 1830s. And this was this idea of, you know, Protestant supporters of, of emancipation being buried there, O'Connell himself being buried there. And everything then from that builds upon it. So you see the Young Irelanders being buried there. There's a reason that the Irish Republican Brotherhood go there to memorialise, to commemorate, to do all of those things. And similarly as well, there's a reason why in 1915, when Tom Clark and John Devoy are looking for a place to bury O'Donovan Rossa, where Pierce is going to have this momentous speech in terms of Irish history, there's a reason that they do that in Glasnevin. And all of that can be brought back to O'Connell and those days of emancipation and the huge impact that it had on the Irish political scene. And take us back 200 years because all of this was quite controversial when it was being considered and developed. Absolutely. Um, and I think the example of how the cemetery, for example, you know, came into being is a wonderful testimony, I suppose, to the way in which O'Connell could take Catholics and indeed Protestants and mobilise them around a particular idea, something which seems very simple, which is the idea of burial being open to everybody and nobody being blocked in terms of their religious rights when it comes to that. Um, you know, you had a situation in churchyards where Catholics were being buried in churchyards that were under the, the control of the, the established church. And this hit a massive issue in 1823 when the funeral of a well-known figure, a man called Arthur Darcy, who was a supporter of O'Connell, a supporter of the Catholic Association, uh, prayers were stopped at, at the graveside. And O'Connell took this and said, initially, we're not going to move from the churchyards. We're going to stay where we are. But actually comes back, kind of thinks about the situation, says, we can actually take the cemeteries movement, which is a completely new idea in, in its context um, and is something quite novel because you're taking people away from churchyards or bringing them to cemeteries outside of the city boundaries, something which in other areas, in Paris, for example, was based on public health. But O'Connell took it and made it a political issue and said, we can actually take control of this. Um, and it took quite a period of time. He goes away from it. You have the suppression of the Catholic Association. They come back to it as an alternative method, again, to try and bring Catholic rights a little bit further. Um, and you have a situation where they have not only control of burial, but also the revenue associated with that, the memorialisation, this idea of the national 
cemetery, something that represented not just politically, but culturally as well, an idea of what Ireland should be. And that's a huge legacy of, of O'Connell. And just one example of the way in which he was able to bring forward his political objectives through means in which you wouldn't immediately think he, 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 he would. And Morris, I think part of the problem is that when we hear the term Catholic emancipation, we see it as some kind of religious thing. And as Ireland has become more secular, you know, again, that kind of connection has faded. But really, it was a, a massive civil rights campaign and a massive civil rights achievement. Yes, well, I mean, to come back to uh, your earlier point, uh, when you talked, make it, made a distinction between seeing emancipation as a Catholic, quote-unquote, uh, event as opposed to an event of civil rights. I mean, that is one of the great changes, I think, in the historiography of recent years, that we've got away from the notion of seeing O'Connell and Catholic emancipation as a Catholic event. And to tie it into your first question about um, commemorations, a lot of that has came about because of the way in which O'Connell was memorialized and remembered and commemorated uh, during the last, uh, in, in 1929, the centenary of Catholic emancipation, and before that in the 1870s when they commemorated uh, the death of O'Connell and so forth. And, and it led to the idea of, for example, the building of a national church to tie it into what uh, Connor has just said there, you know, where the O'Connell Memorial Church in Carsevine, even though it doubles as a parish church, was seen very much as a national monument which would celebrate this great Catholic leader. So I think that really the... Um, the uh, the way in which we view Catholic emancipation has been obscured by the the commemorations of recent years, ironically enough, uh, and uh, uh, when it is, as I said, an issue of civil rights, and of course O'Connell does not was never comfortable with the idea of seeing it as a Catholic event or whatever. He saw it as an event which would celebrate the civil rights of people, because people, regardless of gender or race or color or whatever. Um, they had rights and they had an integrity and it was on that integrity, from that integrity, that Parliament derived its integrity uh, and, of course, led him then to look at movements uh, such as the anti-slavery movement in America and various other movements, the rise of the liberal movement in in Europe, for example, to see it very much in individualistic terms and a celebration, as I said, of the individual regardless of their 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 race, their colour, or indeed their gender. And again, this is a point that's very often overlooked, although I know you deal with it, Patrick, in your own excellent biography, where where you talk about the World's Anti-Slavery Con- Conference that was held in London in June of uh, 1840. I mean, here, this is an event which not only celebrates O'Connell as an abolitionist, but also it celebrates uh, O'Connell's very progressive, if I can use that word, views, very modern views on the role of women, for example, in political discourse and in political representation. And that, again, is something that was very much to the fore of his comments at that convention in 1840 and would have, I think, developed legs, so to speak, were it not for the fact that the famine occurred in Ireland and, of course, the civil war occurred in the United States, which put slavery to the forefront rather than the issues of the the, the issues that were being agitated by the women's movement, which was just as strong in America at that time as the anti-slavery movement was. And Morris, he definitely seems to be very much ahead of his time in some of the, the strategies that he used to mobilise popular support for these movements, the way he had the penny a month scheme in the 1820s or the use of what became known as the monster meetings to try and repeal the union in 1843, that these were you know, innovations when it came to mass democracy and popular participation, the use of moral force instead of physical force, that he was a, an innovator and he was reshaping how politics was done. Yeah, well, this is kind of one of the paradoxes of O'Connell, you know, that here you have a man who is very traditional in a lot of ways, very much conscious of his own authority, very much conscious of his status as a Gaelic chieftain, very vain, uh, very aristocratic in a lot of ways, nonetheless becoming a champion of uh, the populace and the role of the people in the parliamentary system. This is one of the paradoxes, well, one of the paradoxes, I think, that surrounds O'Connell and makes him so difficult to try and uh, figure, figure out. But the penny a month appeal, of course, is actually quite important because it enabled the Catholic Association not only to become an important uh, kind of platform uh, from which O'Connell could articulate his views and could push his agenda forward. But also it enabled, if you like, um, it was, a, it was a th- I won't say a threat to Parliament, but it certainly was a caution to Parliament that if Parliament could not uh, listen to what the people were agitating, 
uh, and try and redress them. Then there were other ways of doing it, even within the law, you know. Uh, and the importance of the Catholic Association is not just, I think, uh, a movement that will mobilize the people, as you said, and drew on their moral integrity and moral force and all that sort of thing. It also, as I said, developed this extra-parliamentary movement, which was in many ways quite quite important, you know, and in many ways helped to contain, in a funny way, the radicalism of the time, because O'Connell, for all his expansion, uh, expansiveness, and for all his, uh, the, the attachment, the, the importance that he attached to the people, did not want, he wanted things to be managed, and he wanted things to be controlled, preferably under, under him, you know. Connor, it's also, I think, important to emphasise how much of a global figure he became in his own lifetime, not just for his campaign against slavery, but even for this this exercise in mass political participation in the 1820s and, and all he did in the British Parliament in the 1830s and then the campaign against repeal in the 1840s, that people were very interested in him, from the Tsar of Russia to, you know, the peasant in France, that that O'Connell was an international name. Yeah, hugely, hugely well known. Um, and there's there's no Irish figure comparable to him, you know, in, in, in the same period or even beyond, arguably, who has that impact, you know, through, throughout Europe. And I know Morris has looked at some of the connections, for example, to Spain and the influences um, there. But you can look, obviously, at, you know, the likes of Frederick Douglass as somebody very well known, you know, who was fundamentally um, uh, influenced by O'Connell and then also more distant connections like Charles de Gaulle, you know, uh, through his, his his grandmother, Josephine Mayo, who, who wrote a biography of him and obviously came to uh, Kerry at the end of his political career to actually visit Derry Nan and to see um, the, the, the place where the liberator had lived. And then also as well, there's you know, all sorts of different translations, you know, of O'Connell's words and speeches and this, you know, spreading of ideas, which, you know, at their end point, if you if you look at 1848, you know, and the revolutions of that period, you know, ended up where somewhere where, where O'Connell may not have, you know, uh, perhaps wanted it. But you look, you know, even at Bohemia, for example, and uh, Carol uh, Borowski, who was a very well-known figure over there, who was translating all of, you know, um, these um, uh, speeches of O'Connell and stories about O'Connell into Czech. And t- it, it spread to such an extent that you had this situation where you had a Czech movement, you know, a secretive underground movement that opened up uh, under the name uh, of um, a Czech repeal uh, and taking those ideas from, from O'Connell. So he ended up in, in places which you would not at all expect. And you can see that ripples through those ripples through the generations. And that goes back as well to that point that we can acknowledge the ripples of O'Connell through the generations internationally, but we aren't as quick to acknowledge them within uh, Ireland itself, which is interesting in its own right. And Connor, you mentioned his his great oratory, and we know he was a great orator because we have lots of accounts of of the crowds gathering and being swayed by his words. And he had this way of ability to make a, an audience cry uh, with the the tragedy of what he was describing, or else burst out laughing with the humour. But he doesn't seem to be there don't seem to be huge, great quotations from him in the way that there perhaps are of other. Was he one of those speakers who perhaps was about creating a, a reaction with the crowd? Or it, I, I don't know, it's a kind of an unusual kind of ability he seems to have had. Yeah, like he, he's, he's left left some some moments, I suppose. But I think, I think certainly if you look at his background and his legal training and you look at the way in which, I suppose... You know, he had this very strong basis in being able to judge the situation in which uh, he was faced and to try and sway people with legal arguments. So you can see that, I suppose, shining through in his, his barbarity. But you also have to remember as well that we have these figures, you know, in history that come along once in a while, have this capacity to be able to bring people along with them within an idea. And often that's, you know, based around archery and, and, and the importance of that. Um, but I think you have to remember as well the fact that O'Connell, um, you know, as, as you really point out as well, that it wasn't, you know, something that came immediately to him as well. The amount of, you know, practice that went into it, the time that was spent on it, this idea of being, you know, um, uh, somebody who could possess these talents wasn't something that he took for granted. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting aspect of O'Connell's 
life, but a fundamentally important one as well, because he certainly wouldn't have progressed, you know, to um, the, the the heights that he did without it. Um, uh, certainly, when you consider, you know, uh, the monster meetings and so on, and um, you know that 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 part of his life as well. And Connor, it's an incredible longevity. You know, I think you'd have to, you know, look at only someone like De Valera to find a comparison in Irish history. The fact that he's there as the agitator in the the eighteen hundreds and the eighteen tens, then that great movement that leads to the success with Catholic emancipation in the 1820s. He's the great parliamentarian in the 1830s. He's leading this great repeal movement in the 1840s that really almost for the first 50 years of the 19th century, O'Connell is dominating Irish politics. Yeah, and that's the the, the question, I suppose, in terms of the, the immediate uh, aftermath of O'Connell's death and who is left to take up the mantle and the shadow that's left there as a result of Connell, which is a huge one. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, uh, O'Connell had this um, this broad political career, which, as I said, covered so many different aspects. And I think when you look at that and you look towards the end of his career and the situation that Ireland faced, you know, in the 1840s um, through the famine and so on, you know, it's certainly, you know, you can look back and say, well, it's a, he, he, it's a pity that he ran out of road as such, you know, um, but it would have been interesting to see how perhaps he would have uh, approached appeal um, in, in the years that followed, because that, of course, was, you know, one of the, the great, you know, great issues, I suppose, that people take with O'Connell towards the end of, of his life is, um, you know, a, a, around repeal. And I think if you look at O'Connell over the broad part of his career, he is somebody that always maintained his objective, but was never fearful of changing his approach towards it. And I think that's something um, that, you know, when it came to repeal, say, he ran out of time, essentially, within that. But it certainly would have been interesting to see how he might have come back, reassessed the situation and gone gone forward with it uh, had, he, had, he, had he been a younger man. Morris, can you tell us about the, the relationship with Kerry? Because he was very much connected with the county and with the people there and with the land. And you, you founded and run that wonderful summer school. And I think it's going, you know, it's at least 12 years now, 13 years, and Cara Sivine and Derry Nan and bringing together people from Ireland and around the world to talk about different aspects to do with the life and the legacy. And there just seems to be this incredible affection that O'Connell had for the county and that I think the people still have for O'Connell. Before I answer that, can I just add one comment on what Connor has said? Um, and it's about repeal and about the popular response to repeal. If you look at these monster meetings, and there's one I remember in particular down in South Kerry in a place called Kilpeakin, which was held in 1843. And if you look at the speeches that were delivered at that monster meeting, uh, Daniel himself wasn't there, but his son, Mar- Morris, I think it was, who was the the repeal inspector general of Munster, I think was the grandiose title that he is. But if you look at the speeches that were given in that, the first five minutes, the speeches uh, relate to the constitution, political arguments. But most of the other speeches relate to agrarian reform, the lead to reform the land system and so forth. And I think that it, when you're talking about monster meetings and um, how they impacted on the people and why the people could listen to these things and these speeches about constitutional matters, what we very often forget is that most of the speeches, that the, that the appeal to the people to, to support repeal uh, was based on the fact that if you had an independent Irish parliament, you would have, you know, a fixity of tenure and freedom of, say, the three Fs and all that sort of thing. And indeed, a lot of the arguments that were later taken up by the Land League and so forth um, um, later on were already vented by O'Connell at some of these monster meetings. There's a famous one in Mullingar, for example, in 1843, which could have come out of the 1870s or 1880s. So when you're talking about repeal and the monster meetings and the popular response to it, it's important to remember that he sold repeal by using the arguments about about the need for um, social reform and agrarian reform and land reform. And he did, of course, the same with Catholic emancipation because that... Uh, movement, as you know, uh, was a movement as in, in the narrowest terms perhaps mightn't have interested a lot of people but when he said, well, when we get Catholic emancipation we'll have the reform of the tithe system afterwards and people support Catholic emancipation in the hope that there would, there would be tithe reform. So I'm just trying to put it in that context. So it brings me back to South Kerry, as I said, because that monster meeting that was held in South Kerry reflects really, um, you know, the wide popular support that he had in South Kerry, both for Catholic emancipation and later on in Kilpeakin in 1843 for repeal. And as I said, repeal was explained to the people 
uh, and conveyed to the people by reference to uh, local issues, you know, the, the fact that, um, as I said, uh, even the, uh, the constabulary, the way they behaved at evictions, for example, all of these things were ventilated. The repeal as, um, as an event that, uh, or as something that uh, concerned the constitutional and political arrangement between Ireland and Britain, that was kept very much to, to one side. Uh, it, that meeting as well also shows, uh, as I said, the great big, or- he had a big organization in South Kerry. Um, and that's important because South Kerry also had a very strong tradition of white boyism and the ribbon men were very strong there. The Rockhites were very strong there. And despite the fact that these um, popular societies that they're called existed with such force in South Kerry, the fact that he was able to supersede these and absorb them into their movements, I think is a testament to how effective his method was and how effective his appeals were. And Morris, there is a church in Carasivine named after Daniel O'Connell. And I think that is extraordinary because if you go around the world, you know, normally they're they're named after a great religious figure, usually oh. a saint or something. Oh. You know, Daniel O'Connell was no saint. And it's 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 interesting to see a, a, a Roman Catholic church named after an Irish political figure. Well, I think it's the, at least in Carcevine we like to think that it's the only one named after a layman in the Catholic world. But the the story behind that is very, very, very easy to explain. Um, as part of the uh, the campaign to build the, the O'Connell, what became the O'Connell Memorial Church of the Holy Cross, that's the full title of it. Um, uh, the parish priest at the time, the bishop at the time, sent um, emissaries to America to raise money. And they met a number of bishops there, a number of people who were involved in the Catholic world who were very reluctant to contribute to this project. And the reason was, to quote Cardinal Gibbons, and maybe I'm paraphrasing him now, that it was not usual or not normal for a church to be named after a layman. You know, you had to be a martyr or a bishop or a priest or something like that. And on that basis, he was reluctant to um, to uh, contribute to the the church in Carcevine. So, of course, what the parish priest did then was he went to Rome where the American bishops were meeting in their ad limina visit, I think it was in 1881 or 1882. Um, and they, he, the parish priest at the time, Canon Brosnan, arranged through the rector of the Irish College in Rome to have an audience with the Pope. And as it happened, Pope Leo XIII, while he was nuncio in Brussels, which had responsibility for England and Ireland, visited England and saw O'Connell uh, um, give a speech in the House of Commons, I think it was in 1843 or 1844, and was so impressed by what O'Connell had to say and was even more impressed by the way in which he was barracked as a Catholic, quote-unquote, politician, that he never forgot that. So therefore he said, this is a champion of the Catholicism, a champion of the faith, and this is the way he would have seen it, of course, as a Pope. And so therefore he authorised the church to be named accordingly, the Daniel O'Connell Memorial Church of the Holy Cross. And, it, and that had an effect on the country, on the money that came in from America because Bishop uh, Colonel Gibbons and Archbishop Farley of Chicago, Bishop Kluske, I think, of New York, they all contributed, they began to contribute and they raised quite a lot of money, but not until the question was, uh, uh, was uh, sorted out by the Pope. And it is, it is wonderful the way the summer school attracts such uh, high-profile guests and that there is such an interest in remembering different aspects of the life, but also applying it to the world today and, and seeing how we can make sense of and apply the life of O'Connell to the, the challenges we face today. Yeah, well, the O'Connell School has been cast a very wide net. I mean, we, we obviously have lectures on... Uh, O'Connell himself on his life and times, lectures on South Kerry, lectures on Kerry, lectures on the life of the nation. But we also cast the wider net and look at the wider issues um, which um, uh, which O'Connell's career raised. Very good. Well, we are talking about the life and legacy of Daniel O'Connell. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Professor Christine Keneally about O'Connell's opposition to slavery and his friendship with Frederick Douglass. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of Daniel O'Connell. And I'm delighted now to be joined by Professor Christine Keneally, Director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, where she's also Professor of History. Her books include Daniel O'Connell and the Anti-Slavery Movement, 
the saddest people the sun sees, as well as black abolitionists in Ireland. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Brian Crowley, an historian working with the Heritage Service, who did the interpretive strategy at Derry Nan House and who has been involved with its exhibitions and collections. Well, you're both very welcome. So, Christine, can we talk about O'Connell and the anti-slavery movement? Because I think it took a long time for people in Ireland to to realise that he really was such a major figure on the world stage during this time. Yeah, I actually don't even know if people realise today, because when we think of O'Connell, we think of Catholic emancipation, we think of the repeal movement. But to me, Daniel O'Connell's greatest contribution was his activities as a human rights activist. And at the forefront of that was his role as an abolitionist. He first got involved in abolition in the 1820s, and after he became a member of parliament in 1829, he was really at the forefront of everything to do with abolition. And it was very timely because the person who we think of, William Wilberforce, was at that stage quite ill, withdrew from parliamentary activities. And it was really Daniel O'Connell who filled that void. And he filled it in a way that really transcended everything that any other Irish or British abolitionist had done. And why do you think it was such a powerful issue for him? Why did he invest so much time and energy in it? Given that, you know, in that time, quite a lot of people were racist. It certainly wasn't popular with with some of his contemporaries, some of his his fellow uh, nationalists. They didn't like him getting involved in, in American issues as they saw it. So he took some risks and it took quite a lot of courage to get involved. Yeah, ultimately, I think Daniel O'Connell was a child of the Enlightenment, which to me, he embraced human rights. He was an internationalist and he believed that oppression, wherever it existed, should be resisted. So that was, to me, the basis of what he felt. And then when he got involved, the British Empire still had slaves. And so initially he got involved and he challenged this British Empire to end enslavement. And again, as an MP after 1829, he devoted time in Parliament to challenging this. And that's where the phrase comes from. At one point, he was so effective in Parliament. People who supported slavery, who benefited financially from it, came to him and said, support us and we will support you on Irish issues. And he said, and so beautifully, though I represent the saddest people, the sun seas, may my tongue cleave to my whatever if I support you. He was very determined. And then largely due to his intervention in 1833, enslavement, slavery was ended in the British Empire came with some you know, some um, additions that O'Connell did not like. Um, slave owners were given £20 million. There was a system of apprenticeship, which he resisted. But after that, he turned his attention to America. And after that, he became this transatlantic hero who spoke out fearlessly against slaveholding in America. And you see it in the friendship then with Frederick Douglass, the the great black abolitionist who escaped from slavery and came to Ireland because he wanted to meet uh, this great champion, Daniel O'Connell. Absolutely. And again, we know from the writings of Frederick Douglass, he first heard of Daniel O'Connell when he was a slave as a teenager. He heard of this Irish man who actually refused to shake the hand of the American ambassador in London on the grounds he was a slave breeder. The American ambassador was furious, challenged O'Connell to a duel. It was reported in all the newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. And Frederick Douglass heard of this Irishman, Daniel O'Connell. And he said, I knew from the way my masters berated him that if I ever met him, I should love him. And that was their first sort of encounter. And then, as we know, Frederick Douglass came to Ireland in 1845. He'd written his narrative, his life story. He needed a sanctuary. He needed to be safe. So he's persuaded to come to Britain. But he came to Ireland because some Irish abolitionists had agreed to publish his narrative. And he said he came for four days, but he stayed for four months. And one of his great ambitions was to meet Daniel O'Connell. And uh, Frederick Douglass came to Ireland. He arrived at the end of August 1845. Of course, Daniel O'Connell was as usual. It was summer in Derry Nan. 
But then he returned to Dublin at the end of September. And Frederick Douglass actually saw him in the street before they had a face-to-face encounter. And he said O'Connell was walking in the street, this great liberator, and he came across some street urchins and he engaged with them. And Frederick said he just observed this scene. And then later that day, he went to a repeal meeting. It was full, 3,000 people were there. He was at the back of the hall. But when O'Connell stopped speaking, the hall emptied out and he moved to the front. And then he was introduced to Daniel O'Connell. And O'Connell said, don't leave, wait, and let's listen to our American friend. And that was the start of that really um, encounter that changed Frederick Douglass's life. Brian, it's a really interesting period in O'Connell's life. And of course, he was only shortly out of prison. And again, I think people maybe aren't always aware of the fact that uh, when the monster meetings were declared illegal, he was arrested and prosecuted and imprisoned and uh, at Richmond Bridewell. And uh, he was really able to kind of turn that period of imprisonment to his advantage. Yeah, I think um, O'Connell is one of the first uh, Irish uh, political figures to really subvert the prison. And I suppose now, when you think of like the late 19th and 20th century, uh, how central prisons, places like Kilmainham Jail and Mountjoy uh, and, and other prison camps become in kind of, I suppose, nationalist identity, that all really begins with O'Connell. So he's put in uh, Richmond Bridewell, which is now Griffith College, um, along the South Circular. Uh, and of course, at that time, prisons are run locally by the local uh, corporations and grand juries. So the Corporation of Dublin, he's recently been mayor of Dublin, so obviously they're looking very favourably on him. So the, uh, the the governor and deputy governor, they um, vacate their residence in the prison and himself and his followers there live in, in many ways, high style. But you can see from the beginning there, uh, anxious to get as much propaganda out of this as possible. So they commission a guy called Henry O'Neill to do these series of uh, paintings of the different rooms and also the prison garden, the governor's garden, which uh, they spend a lot of time in and they actually name different parts of the garden after places where they've had monster meetings. So there's a there's a mullah mast and there's a, uh, a hill of Tara within the, the garden. And down in Derry Nan, uh, we have this amazing collection of, I suppose, of souvenirs that are collected by uh, his secretary, T.M. Ray, who's meticulous. So we have the last glass that he drank from before he got news that he was to be released, the soap dish that he used, his toothbrush holder, uh, but also all these uh, presentations. So on his birthday, the, the, um, the this amazing you can only call it a throne, which again is a very politically loaded thing. Uh, this oak throne with uh, wolfhounds and with gold collars and ruby eyes uh, and a table carved out of a single piece of Irish oak. And these are presented. And again, everything like that, all this kind of pageantry um, uh, brings his story into the public. And I suppose the other thing that we have to remember is, you know, he's the leader of essentially, you know, most of his followers are incredibly poor, uh, incredibly marginalised and they're trying to deal with I suppose all the pomp and ceremony of the British imperial might at the time in the mid-19th century and in some ways they're they're seeing this and they're they're meeting that um, and I suppose it, it reaches this well, I suppose it's apotheosis uh, when he finally gets news that he's to be released so he, he actually leaves prison uh, not once but three times so news comes on the mail boat on a Thursday evening that um, uh, that he is to be released um, and he, himself and his followers and they, they leave and his crowds gather in the city and follow him uh, and walk with him the whole way from South Circle Road to Marion Square and he goes up onto the balcony of his uh, of his townhouse there and addresses the crowd. He returns the next day and they have a garden party uh, as you do um, and we have like a there's a lady's glove that he signed on this uh, this occasion down in Derry Nan but then the, the uh, uh, pièce de résistance then comes on Saturday and clearly they've been planning this for ages. So he goes back, there's a uh, a mass in the chapel in the in the jail of Thanksgiving and then he leaves in this amazing chariot. Uh, that is in Derry Nan as well because it's such a beautiful place to visit. There's so much history, there's so much beauty in the, in the scenery and the surroundings but you also get to see this remarkable chariot, that, uh, this carriage that if you saw it in a Disney movie it wouldn't be out of place. Yeah, it's just it's um, it's nearly impossible to describe it. It's this huge kind of piece of gilt wood um, 
when we different levels di- different levels um, I had to go up actually I had to go on top of it we were uh, we had to close the museum for a while to do some renovations and I had to cover it with uh, Tyvek and I remember going up to the top it was very precarious it was very wobbly up at the top of it uh, but he he left in that on the top of this chariot and it take this it took this huge circuitous route all around the city and of course they passed the old parliament house and he you know he points to that um and he's on top of it. His grandchildren are with him, dressed in green satin outfits. And then at the back of the chariot is a harpist who's playing the harp as they're travelling along the streets of of Dublin. He was a showman. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. Like you, you know, the 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 rebel ballad that then that appears in the eighteen sixties, um, the the felons of our our land where they talk about, you know, the the felon's cap is the highest crown an Irishman can wear. And, you know, that all begins with that. It's just, they're so clever in how they subvert um, what I suppose his enemies hoped would be a humiliation. Um, And it is this moment of triumph. I suppose there's always, I suppose, a melancholy moment with it as well, because in in some ways it's his last moment of triumph, because in the years that follow, um, you have his declining health and uh, ultimately the coming of the famine. And there's a very poignant then illustrations of his funeral where the empty chariot passes through um, the the streets of Dublin. But uh, when you do go down to Derry Dan, it is kind of a shock when you go into what looks like, I suppose, a, a stable. And then inside it is this huge chariot, uh, which is actually on loan to Derry Nan from uh, the National Museum. But it's also surrounded by all these... Um, souvenirs and gifts that are given to him uh, during uh, his time in prison. It's an incredibly rich uh, collection of material about that one moment. Uh, and, it, and it goes to show, I suppose, how important objects and artefacts and, as I said, kind of ceremony and showmanship was to O'Connell and, and how he operated. Christine, Brian mentioned there the darkness of the famine and the tragedy of the final years of O'Connell's life. And it really did impact him so much, didn't it, in those final those final years, the tragedy, the catastrophe of the famine? It did. Um, so, as we know, Daniel O'Connell died May 1847. He was on his way to see the Pope. Sadly, he never made it. But he had experienced months of famine, which, as we know, again, got worse after the second potato failure in 1846. But he was active from the beginning. In 1845, when the potato first failed, he was part of the Mansion House Committee, And that group of people went to the Lord Lieutenant in the Phoenix Park and they said, at this stage you have to do something. Why don't you close the ports, stop food from leaving Ireland? You need to intervene. Of course, they refused to do so. And then after 1846, it got worse and his words were proved right. And you poignantly, his very final speech in the British House of Commons 8th of February 1847, was about the famine. And people who heard him speak felt he was a changed man. Um, Brian spoke about him being ill. It was very visible at that stage. But his speech was so powerful, so poignant. And he said, unless you intervene, 25% of Irish people will be lost. We need you to do something. And of course, we know the British government didn't intervene in an appropriate way. And we know that Ireland lost 25% of its population. So publicly, it was very, very sad and he was very active in what he did. But also personally, because again, he was very unpopular in the British press. The London Times hated O'Connell. And throughout the famine, they wrote a series of articles saying, this man is a hypocrite, he's a bad landlord. And it was not true. He actually, he brought in food, he tried to support his tenants. So again, you know, there was a whole propaganda campaign. But yes, he I think he died a broken-hearted man, knowing that Ireland was suffering so badly. And, you know, as you say there, he he did so much to try and alleviate the impact on on the people in Kerry. He tried to to save as many people he could in the country, these pleas before Parliament, that it really did consume him uh, and all his energies in those final years. Yeah, again, you know, at this stage he was 
about 70, he led a life you know, given to public service, a life where he was traveling between Tehran and London, which even today is no easy thing. And so it, he was a broken man, but physically he was very ill at this stage. But I think very poignantly, you know, his last thoughts, his last speech in the House of Commons was all to do with people in Ireland. Brian, Derry-Nan House, it's such a, an important part of the O'Connell story. And it was somewhere where people from around the world came to because they wanted to see O'Connell. And so he built it up that it would be a house befitting of this Gaelic chieftain that he was. Yeah, and, and, and it was also a place that he wanted people to come because he's um, incredibly conscious that the depiction of Ireland is as of this kind of backward place full of poor people. And one of the things uh, that his visitors there keep uh, talking about is how he's emphasising the ancient nature of the civilization that they... So he's he's almost like a, a version of Falch Ireland where he's like bringing them to Stague Fort, to uh, the Skelligs, showing them this kind of ancient tradition. So the, the house he inherits, again, it's very kind of representative of, of his own life. He inherits this home of the... Gaelic chieftains of, uh, the, I suppose that he's part of the last moment of the 18th century Irish Catholic Gaelic uh, world. And, you know, when you remember that his aunt is Eileen uh, Dove Nicholl, the, the woman who wrote The Lament for Art O'Leary. So th- he has this 18th century house and then when he, be, when he inherits the estate, he builds on a wing, I suppose, that fulfills the needs of him as a public man on a public stage, um, uh, on a world stage. So that's where his dining room and his drawing room where he can entertain all these visitors are. But there's a wonderful story that existed down um, in that, that area that sometimes he'd be in the drawing room in the evening and he would hear or hear tell that a particularly well-known local singer was coming in and he would kind of uh, quietly drift out of his, um, I suppose, his uh, very fancy uh, drawing room situation and then go to the kitchen in the old part of the house and join in with the local people. Uh, and he has this really interesting mix of this kind of, he has a sense of himself as this kind of Gaelic chieftain who's responsible for uh, the population down there. And I think that's really one of the reasons why he's so badly hit by the famine, because, you know, these are his, literally his people that are are, are suffering. Uh, so he has that part of his life. And then, of course, he is like this very modern figure who is, um, I, I suppose, shaping what we now know is kind of modern democracy um, in London. Um, and, and these two worlds exist in this one person. And the house is very much kind of representative of this, this idea of the, like these two wings, these two parts of his life um, and, and this kind of slightly ramshackle way that they're kind of all connected into one. Well, my thanks to Professor Christine Keneally, the Director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. And she's also Professor of History there. And Brian Crowley, an historian working with the Heritage Service, who's done brilliant work uh, at Derry Nan House. My thanks to uh, both of you for joining me now tonight. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be rejoined by Professor Morris Brick and Connor Dodd to talk about the legacy of Daniel O'Connell. But before we go to our break, just a quick shout out to the history class of the Trinity Access programme who are currently studying Daniel O'Connell and they're going to be visiting Glasnevin this week and I'm calling into them tomorrow to talk to them about Daniel O'Connell so I know they're listening to the show tonight and I hope they're enjoying it and we'll be back with more on Daniel O'Connell right after this. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and we are talking about the life and legacy of Daniel O'Connell. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my expert panel, Professor Morris Brick and Connor Dodd, an historian with Dublin Cemeteries Trust. And Morris, I suppose when we get to the end phase of O'Connell's life and we get to the ending of the monster meetings and the decision to cancel the meeting in Clontarf in October 1843, in some ways, I think O'Connell hasn't really been forgiven for, no. for not going ahead with that. No, he, he hasn't. Um, I mean, O'Connell's attitude to violence, which I think is really behind what your question is, a very complicated topic. But it's not just, I think, in my view anyway, it's not just that O'Connell did not believe in violence. I mean, he did not believe in violence, but it's not as simple as that. I think that what he saw when he was a student in France and saw the... 
uh, excesses of the French Revolution. He wasn't appalled just by the violence, but he was appalled by the way in which society collapsed. And the thing about O'Connell is that he is in many ways a very a modern figure in a lot of ways, a very progressive, forward-looking figure in a lot of ways, but he also is a very traditional figure. He's very much the Gaelic chieftain, you know, who presides over South Kerry as if it is a Gaelic fiefdom, and in many ways he, he sees himself in that role. And he does not want to see violence overwhelm that. And I, so I think that his attitude... Um, Uh, to violence is certainly informed by that. Apart from being this great civil rights leader and activist and agitator and campaigner, he was, of course, a superb barrister, perhaps the greatest barrister ever in Irish history. And, Mm. you know, so many knew him through his his reputation as a lawyer. That's right. Well, of course, it's often been uh, noted that in rural Ireland, certainly in rural Munster, that he was known as the counsellor rather than the emancipator. You know, the emancipator is something that happened very, very much later in his life. And that was because of his um, ability to uh, argue a case for his clients. And he certainly was one of the highest uh, paid barristers during the 1820s and 1830s. And of course, he had to forego all that when he... um, went into Parliament and of course that led to all of these uh, funds being raised to enable him to um, to uh, to be an effective parliamentarian without looking over his shoulder at the bailiffs, you know. But he wasn't good with money, of course, as we know. Wasn't good with, well, wasn't good with money. And so I, I think it's good, I think, Morris, that we're not, we're not blind to the flaws as well. No. You mentioned before the vanity that yeah. it's not like he's just some saintly figure in Irish history no. going around uh, raising up people from their, from their state of oppression, that uh, he, he had his, his flaws as well, the anger, the vanity, the, the problems with money, you know, always allegations of, of, of flandering and so on, that, you know, there, there's, a, there's, there's different perspectives to O'Connell. Connor, how would you assess his legacy? He's a hugely significant figure, as we've we've talked about, not just in 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 our in the Irish context, but in the international context. And I think you know Catholic emancipation and whether we kind of recognise it today as it was at the time is a hugely important event in in Irish history. You know, as I say, Glasnevin is a huge part of his legacy within 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 the city, not just as a practical burial space, but as a political burial space and the monument that was raised to him. And you only have to look at that, I think, to give a sense of the esteem in which he was was held and also the funeral as well that came through Dublin, the size of that, the scale of it, and um, the, 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 the people as well, as was noted in the 1860s, who came from every quarter of the globe to visit his grave. Um, all of these things um, give you a sense of O'Connell in, in, in his day. And I think when you look at, as you say, all those ripples of O'Connell through the ages, um, there, there, there's a lot to be said for what he did. And I think because of the complicated nature of O'Connell that we've touched upon, all these different little intricacies of his life, um, the, the inconsistencies sometimes as well of his life, it leaves him open to so many different interpretations and versions. I think that's one of the great things about him as well, is that, you know, long after uh, all, all of us here are gone, um, there'll be people talking about O'Connell and describing uh, his legacy. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a good thing because I, I would certainly advocate that the, the position that this sense of nationhood essentially started with O'Connell at the start of the 19th century. And if you visit Glasnevin Cemetery, you see not only the wonderful O'Connell monuments, but the visitor experience. And it's very much part of the Glasnevin story. But then you also get to see Michael Collins's grave, Parnell's, that it's, it's very much the story of Ireland over that 200 year period. Yeah, and founded by O'Connell. And we, we, we still survive in, 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 in that vein. And I think what's interesting as well, and one of the things to that is always important to touch upon as well is that O'Connell was this great figure, but it's important to remember as well the people who surrounded him, um, those within the Catholic Association, not least his wife as well, you know, who was a huge support to him throughout his life. Um, all of these people who assisted and enabled O'Connell, and you can see that particularly through the Dublin Cemetery's committee as it was, the founding body of, of uh, Glasnevin, you know, people like Matthias O'Kelly um, and, you know, Stephen Coppinger, all these people who would have been around O'Connell in his lifetime and gave him huge support um, in seeing through the different ideas that that he had. So um, it's, it's, 
it's a place that when you look at it on the surface, um, I think you can somewhat take it for granted as, you know, this is the place where, you know, Collins is buried or De Valera is buried or any of these characters. But there's a reason that they're all there. There's a reason that Collins isn't in Cork and there's a reason that O'Donovan Rossa isn't in New York. And a lot of that stems back to the, 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 the foundations that were, that, were, that were put in place back in the 1830s. And I think that's a perfect note on which to end our discussion of Daniel O'Connell tonight. My thanks to my wonderful panel of experts. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Simon Keane, who helped us out tonight, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.